Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 29 is our text of Scripture for today. This is the 15th sermon in a series through the New Testament book of Romans. Today's message is 34 handwritten pages, and the title of the message today is The Law Plus $2.75. So if you would please turn to Romans chapter 2. As you do, remember that God loves you. Remember that as you're turning, as you're reading, as you're listening, and as you're living the rest of your life. God loves you. Listen, please, as I read our 13 verses today, beginning with Romans chapter 2 and verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you were instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Precious Father in heaven, if we are left to ourselves, we will seek glory that comes from one another. Lord, we will follow externals. Lord, we will be religious. Lord, we will be hypocrites. But Lord, if your spirit comes and changes us from the inside out, Lord, then we will want to please you. And Lord, then we will keep your commandments, Lord, because we will love you. And Lord, we will love you because we will realize that you have first loved us. And so Lord, today, please cause us to remember and to concentrate on the fact that you love us that you've expressed that love to us in Christ, and then in turn, Lord, would you cause us to have soft hearts which are led by the Spirit, not hypocritical lives, but soft hearts led by the Spirit to do your will, Lord, because we want to please you. That That is our prayer, Lord. That is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have a two-point outline today. Point number one is the law, and point number two is circumcision. Here's the big picture of Romans chapter 2. Paul the Apostle, who is the author of the book of Romans, is trying to prove to the Jew that Jewishness in and of itself cannot save. And there are two key marks of Judaism, which would set the Jewish people apart as special and unique and privileged people who have the smile of God upon them. And those two marks are, number one, the law, and number two, circumcision. The first mark, the law. The law was written by Moses. It was given by God to the nation of Israel when they were in the wilderness. It is contained in the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And it was the national legislation for the nation of Israel. The second mark of Judaism is circumcision. It was given to Abraham and his descendants as a sign of the covenant and that is first seen in Genesis chapter 17. Well, the Gentiles, that is the non-Jews, they were not given these privileges. And because they didn't have these privileges, the Jews thought themselves to be better than Gentiles. 
But more importantly than that, these Jews counted themselves to be right with God because they had the law and because they had circumcision. And Paul's big picture point in Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 29, our, our text for today, is that Jews are mistaken to assume that they are saved simply because they possess the law and simply because they have circumcision. Now, I would assume that most of you know that already, and I would assume that there's nobody in the room right now or nobody who's listening to this sermon who's struggling with this. In fact, I would probably argue that even most of the people to whom he was originally writing the book of Romans, that they were not struggling with this, because remember, the book of Romans was written to Christians, Christians who were both Jews and Gentiles. He is writing to Christians, but in Romans chapter 2, he is writing about unsaved Jews. And so what this is, it's a part of a larger argument in which Paul is spelling out his gospel. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel says that Jesus died for sinners, that he rose again on the third day. And there's nothing more important than the gospel. In fact, the gospel is of first importance. And the gospel is in the book of Romans. We see the gospel in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, where it says that there is none righteous, no, not one. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, which says Christ died for the ungodly. And in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, which says that he was raised for our justification. And in Romans 3, 28, that we conclude that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. The gospel is all over the book of Romans. But it is very important to note that this gospel applies only to lost sinners who know and understand and feel the fact that they are lost sinners. And so Paul, in love, right up front, as he is describing and explaining and setting out his gospel for guilty lost sinners, first of all, in chapter 1, lets the Gentiles know that they are lost and guilty sinners. And then, in the chapter which we are in right now, chapter 2, he is letting the Jews know that they are lost and guilty sinners. And then in chapter 3, he's going to conclude that everybody is a sinner and that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. His method of communication in chapter 2, or his rhetoric, is in the form of a diatribe, which is an imaginary conversation with an imaginary friend. Well, this friend, whom we have dubbed Mr. Privileged Character, he is a self-righteous, unsaved Jew. And Paul starts off today in this text proving to Mr. Privileged Characters that a Jew who possesses the law of Moses does not have salvation simply because he has the law. Which brings us to point number one, the law. Allow me again to read verses 17 and 18 in Romans chapter 2. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God. Now, notice these three things here are in ascending order. They are getting more important. There's the Jew, the law, and God moving up in importance. And, and the Jew has a claim on all of these things. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will, in other words, you know what the law of God says, and approve what is excellent, in other words, you have discernment to interpret the law. Why is all of this true? Because you are instructed from the law. Now, these five items that are listed here are not negative. They are not derogatory. Uh, these items are not a way of Paul being sarcastic. There's no sarcasm here at all. These are genuine Jewish privileges, things which Jews should be happy about and which they should rejoice in. It is true that God elected them as his special people, and they should recognize that and they should rejoice in that. But not only is it acceptable for them to boast in God, they in fact are commanded to boast in God. Look back, please, in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Jeremiah chapter, I'm sorry, uh, yes, Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. In this, the Jew is called to recognize all that God has done and to boast in God. Listen to these words. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast 
in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this. So there is a good type of boasting. He's to boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, Yahweh, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I will delight, declares the Lord. In other words, it is a good thing to make a boast in God. There's nothing wrong about being uniquely blessed by God and recognizing that. And so you see here that all of this, and I pointed it out before in verse 18, comes to them as a result of the fact that they have the law and that they have read the law. Now, when Paul wrote this particular section, he probably had in mind Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. You know what the book of Deuteronomy is, right? Deuteronomos, second law. Uh, The law was given to the Jews at Mount Sinai, They wandered for 40 years, and then right before Moses died, right before they went into the wilderness, he gives them the law again, the second law, the Deuteronomus, the Deuteronomy. He gives them this right before they go into the land. Undoubtedly, this is what Paul had in mind when he was writing this. Turn back, please, to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4, and look at verses 5 through 8, and notice how striking the comparison is between these two passages beginning in Deuteronomy 4, 5. See, I have taught you statutes and rules. That is the law, Moses is saying. As the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of peoples, the peoples, that is Gentiles, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation, Israel, is wise and understanding. Uh, For what great nation is there that has a God, small g, so near to It, as the Lord, Yahweh, our God, is to us whenever we call upon him. The implied answer is that nation doesn't exist. And in verse 8, what great nation is there that has statutes and rules, that is the law, so righteous as all this law that I have set before you today? And the answer is that there is no nation like that. The Jews had a unique relationship with God. To them alone was given the law. Or as the Lord says in Amos chapter 3, verse 2, you only, O-N-L-Y, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. And notice that they were not to keep this to themselves, but they were to pass it on to the nations and to the Gentiles, that when the Gentiles would look at the Jews, they would see what a wonderful God God is. Isaiah 49.6, they were to be a light to the Gentiles, or the fulfillment of the promise of Abraham that through you all the nations or the Gentiles of the earth will be blessed. Well, let's move on now in Paul's argument to verses 19 and 20, Romans chapter 2, 19 and 20. And if you are sure, speaking to the Jew again, that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of the of knowledge and truth. Once again, there is nothing in this which is bad or sarcastic. These are all good things that Jews should be doing. They have the law. They should be spreading it to other people. And he's saying, if you are confident that you have this information that an ignorant world needs or this light that a dark world needs, well, as Jews, you then possess the key to wisdom and life. Now, again, I have to stress that Paul, who is usually sarcastic, is not being sarcastic here. There's nothing to be ashamed of in having all of these blessings. There is a God, there is only one God, and this one God has chosen to communicate. And the means by which he has chosen to communicate is through his written word, and the people to whom he has chosen to give this word were the Jews, and the place where he chose to do it was at Mount Sinai. He could have chosen not to communicate at all. You understand that. God did not have to say anything, but he chose to say something. He could have chosen... You understand this. He could have chosen to communicate to the Philistines or to the Egyptians. He didn't choose them. 
God could have chosen to communicate through implanting a hearing device in the ear of every person who was of his elect, which they would follow individually. He didn't choose to communicate in that way. He could have chosen to do a lot of things, but here's what he did choose to do. He chose the Jewish people, and he chose to communicate to them through a written law. Why did he choose to communicate this to them in that way? The answer is that he loved them, which begs the question, why did he love them? Why did he love them? And the answer is spelled out once again back in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 7. You know, God chose the Jewish people starting with Abraham and moving forward. Why did he do it? Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 6 through 8 spells this out. For you, speaking to the Jews here, are a people holy or separate to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. For crying out loud, when he starts out, there is Abraham and Abraham alone. So, so numbers did not play into it. God didn't look at them and say, well, you're, you're, you're a wonderful people. I'm going to choose you. That, prior to Abraham, there was nobody. So, so numbers had nothing to do with it. But God says, here's the reason why. But it is because the Lord loves you. Why does God love them? Here we go. Because he loves them. It's good enough for me. He loves them because he loves them. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He loved them because he loved them. And this is something that God had the prerogative to do. He didn't have to love anybody, but he chose to love them. And all of this, what Paul is saying up to this point, should give them reason for rejoicing. There's no problem with the text so far. But as we move into verses 21 through 23, we see the problem. And here it is, Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols or hate idols, uh, do you rob temples in which there are idols and you take them for yourself? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. See, the problem here is not that the Jews lack information. It's that they do not apply that information personally. And this is known as hypocrisy, literally to be an actor. And Paul stated this argument back in chapter 2, verse 1, when he first introduced us to Mr. Privileged Character, when he said, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So, it is not... Paul questioning their doctrine or their theology or their knowledge of the word in this diatribe conversation. He's not saying that you people are bad or boring preachers. He is saying you simply do not practice what you preach. What you are saying is filled with empty words because you yourself do not do what you're saying other people should do. And he uses three examples of their hypocrisy. Thievery, adultery, and robbing temples, theft, adultery, and pagan temple robbing. Well, now the first two are self-explanatory. You know what it means to steal. You know what it means to commit adultery. This third one is a little bit tougher. Paul is saying, you who hate idols, do you yourself rob temples? And I'm thinking to myself, how many Jews were there in the first century who are actually guilty of robbing pagan idols? Well, apparently there were some, um, 
And the reason that we know that there were some is because in the law of Moses, there is a prohibition against taking idols from pagans. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 25, says that the carved images of their gods, small g, you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for yourself lest you be enslaved by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. So there, the, the Lord knew that there was going to be some temptation from his people to take idols and make them for take them for themselves. Now, maybe, maybe the application in the New Testament is this. Maybe because Rome was a city which was given to such idolatry, maybe there were some Jews there who were tempted to steal some of those idols and maybe sell them. Uh, another answer could be the Jews were just known as people who stole and robbed from Gentile or pagan temples. For example, in Acts chapter 19, verse 37, you'll remember that Paul and Silas were in Ephesus and a riot broke out and for two hours the people screamed and nobody even knew why they were there. And the town clerk is trying to get everyone quiet so that he can defend Paul and Silas. And here's what the town clerk says in defense of Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 19, verse 37, and I'm reading from the NIV. He says, you have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess, our goddess Diana. So are you following the argument here? Why in the world would this man say, these men are innocent, they have not robbed our temple, if Jews at previous times had not robbed their temple? Uh, it would be something like this. Um, if, if a young man, and the term we used to use back in the day was juvenile delinquent, if a juvenile delinquent is in court and he gets a public defender and he's standing before the judge and the judge is making the case and says, Your Honor, my client has not sprayed graffiti, nor has he shoplifted, the judge would be listening and saying, looking at the young man and say, okay, that sort of seems to fit. And if that's his defense, I'm, I'm hearing you out on that. That, that, that all matches up. However, if the public defender were standing with the same young man before the judge and saying, I'm here to vouch for the character of this young man, your honor. He has never started a Ponzi scheme, nor has he ever hijacked a plane to Cuba. The judge would be saying, I know that. Like, why are you even bringing that accusation up? That is completely irrelevant. You see, what, 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 what has to happen here in order for it to be a valid accusation or a reasonable illustration, it has to be something that they possibly would be doing and be guilty of. I don't have any records from literature of the first century which said the Jewish people robbed temples but Paul obviously knew about some things that I do not know about. But the sins themselves are not the important thing. And don't allow that, 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 that side note to throw you off. The, the important thing here is that those sins are just illustrations. And what he's saying here is that Jews who are self-righteous are hypocritical. They have the law. They boast in the law. They teach the law, but they do not keep the law. See, Jews were not guilty simply by having the law. They were guilty because they broke the law while preaching. At the same time, it was wrong for other people to do it. It is the ultimate, do as I say and not as I do, happy Father's Day. And their hypocrisy was not isolated. It was not self-contained. It was contagious and it had an impact upon the Gentiles. Notice the impact that it had upon the Gentiles from verse 24. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now this is probably a quote from what Summer read earlier from Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 23, where we read, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. God is saying, I have to do some work here in order to get my name right among the Gentiles. And the reason that I need to do that is because the way that you Jews have lived among the Gentiles has profaned my name and you have made me look bad. 
Or maybe, maybe what Paul is quoting here is Isaiah 52, verse 5, where it says, My people are taken away for nothing, that is, taken away captive. Their rulers wail, that is, the Jewish leaders, declares the Lord. And continually, all day, my name is despised. My name is made to look bad because of the way that the Jewish people have behaved. Or maybe Paul has both passages in mind. We don't know. But the point is the same in both passages, namely that the Jews, through their disobedience to the law, have given Gentiles fodder to say, God is an absolute joke. There is nothing genuine about their religion. There's nothing admirable about their law. That law which they carry around and they read all day and they boast in and they say this has a great relationship or puts them in a great relationship with God, it is completely irrelevant. It does not help them in any way because they are complete hypocrites and they live ungodly lives. And if that's what their God produces, well, I don't want anything to do with their God. So, the title of today's sermon is The Law Plus $2.75 Will Get You on the Subway. Remember the old phrase when someone would be boasting about something and they would be talking about how great they were or whatever, and the response would be, well, that plus a subway token will get you on the subway. Well, we don't have tokens anymore, so I have made it contemporary for you. You understand the law plus $2.75 will get you on the subway. In other words, the law in and of itself, if not applied and obeyed, is of no value whatsoever, which brings us to point number two, and that is circumcision. If you do not know what circumcision is, I am not going to tell you. Ask your parents later. I'm not going to show you a slide. I'm not going to provide a video for you. It was a physical sign in the form of a surgical procedure performed on eight-day-old Jewish males. And it was given to Abraham and to his descendants, that is, the Jewish nation, and it was to set them apart from all other people. And when Romans was written, the common belief of the Jew of that day is that God would not allow a circumcised person to go to hell. Listen to this quote from one rabbi. He writes, No person who is circumcised will go down into Gehenna. Gehenna is another word for hell. Circumcision was really important. Like we who follow different sports teams, we wear T-shirts which depict who our favorite sports team is so as to identify with them. Circumcision is not wearing a T-shirt. Circumcision is a permanent mark that says, I am different than you and I am better than you. It was their actual payment to get into heaven, or so they thought. Another rabbi wrote this, In the age to come, Abraham will sit at the gate of Gehenna, that is hell, and he will not permit a circumcised Israelite to go down there. I mean, how crazy is this, that your actual belief is that Father Abraham is sitting there at the entranceway to hell, and he's looking at every guy that goes by and says, "Ah, nope, you can't go to hell, because you're circumcised, and he pulls him out and takes him to heaven. That's nuts. That's just just crazy nuts. The Talmud says this, Wicked Jews are at the time under the sentence to suffer in Gehenna. In other words, if you're a really bad, wicked sinner, you ought to go to hell. But our father Abraham comes and brings them up and receives them. In other words, they're going to go to hell for a little while, but not to worry. But because they've been circumcised, father Abraham's going to go down into hell and he's going to get them out. That is how confident the Jews were in circumcision. And that is just wrong. According to this thinking, your eternal fire insurance is secured if you're a male when you're eight days old through circumcision. Well, what does Paul say to his diatribe friend who thinks this way? Notice what he says in verse 25. 
For circumcision indeed is of value if, 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 conditional statement, if, if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Translation, the only thing that matters before God is whether or not you keep the law. In other words, circumcision plus $2.75 will get you on the seven train. Anything plus $2.75 will get you on the subway. In other words, your circumcision is 100% valueless and irrelevant when it comes to gaining eternal favor with God. Paul then poses a hypothetical situation, and he speaks theoretically here of someone, a Gentile, who just might be able to keep the law of God. Listen to this hypothetical situation that Paul sets forth in verses 26 and 27. So, for instance, if a man who is uncircumcised, we would call him a Gentile, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? In other words, physically he's not circumcised, but he's living in accordance with the law, so it will be credited to him as though he is actually circumcised or a part of the covenant of God. Verse 27, then he who is physically uncircumcised, that is a Gentile, but keeps the law, will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. In other words, let's just say that there's a Gentile who keeps the law of Moses perfectly, but he is not circumcised. Paul says, that guy's going to end up in heaven. And not only is he going to end up in heaven, but at the final judgment, he will condemn you. Not that he will be your judge to decide your fate, but he will be your judge in that when his life is put up next to yours, it will be a testimony against your life that he lived righteously, even though he didn't have the law, and you lived unrighteously, even though you did have the law. And so when your lives are looked at at the same time, their righteous life will prove that they are innocent, and it will prove that you are guilty. This is exactly what Jesus meant in Matthew chapter 12, verses 41 and 42. He's speaking here to people that have had miracles performed in front of them, and they have had the greatest preacher that ever lived, Jesus Christ, giving them his word to them, and here's what he says about their guilt. Matthew chapter 12, 41 and 42. The men of Nineveh, you remember the men of Nineveh? Jonah goes to Nineveh, he's been inside a fish for three days, he comes and he preaches an eight-word sermon. He's got a horrible attitude. It's supposed to take him three days to walk around the city of Nineveh, but it takes him only one day, and he's just going around with his eight-word sermon, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And he's hoping that the people will not repent. Horrible preacher, horrible sermon, horrible attitude to pagan people who have essentially no background in the things of God at all. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation, the generation to whom I am speaking now, who have had countless miracles and have had me, the eternal Son of God, God in human flesh, preaching to them with this generation and condemn it. Why? For they, the Ninevites, repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here." Arguing from the lesser to the greater, if under a lesser preacher people repented, how much more guilty are you going to be if you had a greater preacher, Jesus Christ, preaching to you, but you did not repent? Similarly, in verse 42, the queen of the south, that is the queen of Sheba, will rise up at the judgment, in the final judgment, with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Here you have a pagan queen who is from far away, a woman who needs nothing. I mean, she's as wealthy as wealthy can be. Nobody goes to her, but she gets word of mouth that there is someone who is wise. She goes to Solomon. She hears the wisdom of Solomon and becomes saved. If that pagan woman can go out of her way to get saved, 
traveling on her own dime to hear Solomon. Solomon, who was a man who was full of compromises. How much more guilty are you if you have heard the actual Son of God preach and you did not repent? And that, I believe, is what Paul is saying here. There is going to be a judgment, and those who have had less light are going to stand as a testimony against those of you who have had more light. Side note. Sometimes when I say side note, I'm preparing to tell a joke. There's no joke here. Sometimes when I say side note, it's something just that I find to be interesting, but it doesn't have any impact upon the content of the sermon at all. It's just sort of something that I have studied that I think is kind of clever, and I just want to insert it so that you will know it. Not so that you will become a better Christian, but just so that you can go out and impress your friends. I'll just say side note, and then I'll insert something. But whenever you hear me say side note, you don't really have to listen because it's not really part of the flow of the sermon. This is what I'm about to give you, the most important side note that I've ever given in my entire life. I will never give a more important side note than this. This is essential. And that is the imaginary, uncircumcised, law-keeping Gentile in this hypothetical, theoretical situation does not exist. Paul is just saying, for example, if this were to happen. Let me tell you, this person of whom he's speaking does not exist because in the next chapter, he's going to tell us in verse 10 that there is none righteous, no, not one. And in verse 23, he's going to say that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul is merely saying that if an uncircumcised Gentile could keep the law, and they cannot, but let's just say they could, they would go to heaven even if they weren't circumcised. In other words, perfect righteousness plus nothing gets you into heaven. But the problem is nobody has perfect righteousness. It is a hypothetical situation. It is not a realistic situation. It is just the building of an argument. You're a Jew, even though you, 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 you have the law and you have circumcision, you will go to hell, but they would go to heaven. They don't exist, but if they did exist, they would go to heaven. Or to put it another way, everyone who has the law and who has circumcision needs to add $2.75 in order to get on the train. Does that mean that the law is meaningless? No. Does it mean that circumcision is meaningless? Not at all. The law has a purpose and circumcision had a meaning. But it is not a season pass to get into heaven. It is not a get out of hell free card. Paul goes on in verses 28 and 29 to define what Jewishness really is. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, that is, they have been circumcised, nor is real circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. The Jews were, past tense were, God's chosen people. And in chapter 3, Paul is going to spell out some of the advantages of being ethnically, physically Jewish and circumcised. But first, he wants to be very clear. And he wants to explain that true Jewishness in the sight of God has absolutely nothing to do now, today, with your bloodline. In the new covenant, that is, after the cross of Christ, Jewishness is 100% irrelevant. It has nothing to do with the kind of surgery you may have had as a baby. But a real Jew is one who is circumcised in the heart. How is it? that this all comes about. Well, he says it is by the Spirit. Uh, he said that it doesn't happen by a moil at a brisk when you're eight days old. It is done by the Spirit and through the gospel. And it is a change not in the keeping of outward commandments, but it is a change from the inside out through the Spirit. And it doesn't matter whether you are Jewish ethnically or whether you are a Gentile. Everyone who is saved is a Jew, spiritually speaking. 
So Dan, newly engaged Dan. <laughs> newly engaged Dan. Believer in Jesus Christ. True Jew. Truly engaged Dan. He's going to break a glass at his wedding. Mazel tov, Danny boy. Mazel tov. A Jew is one who is inwardly a Jew. And how do we know that one is a true Jew? Well, he says one of the ways you can know this is that they are concerned about what other people think. No, 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 no. They are concerned about what God thinks. It doesn't matter to them what other people think. Rather, they strive to please God. Look at verse 29. His praise is not from man, but from God. You see, the hypocrite, the Pharisee, the man who claims special status, Mr. Privileged Character, believes that because of his Jewishness, he will be in heaven. And what does he try to do? He tries to get praise from other people. Matthew 23, verses 6 and 7. They love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogues. Verse 7, and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. By contrast, the real Jew, the true Jew, is pleasing to God and he has pleasing God as his aim. Matthew chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. By the way, do you know what your left hand and your right hand have in common? You. So what Jesus is saying is not only should you sound not sound a trumpet for other people to hear, but you should not even let you know what you are doing. You should be trying to give the glory to God and give praise to him so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. In other words, a way, a way that you can detect a true Jew is that you don't detect them. They are doing what they do to be seen by God and their deeds will be done secretly and you might never know about them. But God will know about them. Ten observations as we close. Observation number one, teach yourself. Examine yourself before you teach or preach to others. Don't make requests of other people that you are unwilling to do yourself. The actual words in verse 21 are teach yourself. When I played football, we at the end of every practice would practice punting. So the punt team would practice and we would kick the ball downfield and someone would try to field it and we would try to tackle them. Our punt team coach, special teams coach, he was a great coach, was a guy by the name of John Casey and he had a mantra for the punt team and that is that when the ball is kicked, find the ball, find the ball. You can't tackle the person if you don't know where the ball is. And so as you're running down the field, the ball is kicked over your head, you are to look behind you and you are to find the ball. Find the ball, find the ball, find the ball. Can't make this stuff up. One day at practice, we are, pra we are practicing the punt, and he dozens of times that day has screamed, find the ball, find the ball, find the ball. The ball is kicked. The team is running down the field in order to defend the person that will catch it and try to run with it. And lo and behold, he's screaming, find the ball, find the ball, and it landed on his head. True story, true story. Don't expect things from others which you cannot do yourself. It is not wrong to rebuke a thief. It is wrong to rebuke a thief if you yourself are stealing. Remove the log from your own eye. Number two, when God's people sin, God himself is the one who is dishonored. God is dishonored when we, the people who claim to belong to him, break his law. Again, in verse 23, you who boast in the law, dishonor God. Dishonor God by breaking the law. We talk so much about like when you behave, you say you're a Christian, you behave in an ungodly way, how that hurts your testimony or how it gives the church a black eye. And that is true, it does. But do you understand that what is happening primarily when we who claim to love and know the Lord are living in a way which is hypocritical or sinful, 
It's not primarily that we're giving the church a black eye or that we are compromising our own testimony. It's that we are dishonoring God. We are making him look bad. And so you need to stop and ask, how does God look in light of what I am doing? You claim to belong to him. Does your life reflect his glory? Number three, from verse 24, we learn that the way we live is a witness to the unsaved. Now, we are not going to be able to win them to Christ with our godly lives. You you might persuade them by your example to shovel your snow, but, but you're not going to lead them to salvation simply by being a good neighbor. They're going to be saved by hearing the gospel, hearing the word, and believing. Faith comes by hearing the word. However, they will use you as an excuse negatively to blaspheme God if your life does not match your message. How often have you heard one say, I'm not going to go to church. The reason I'm not going to go is because the church is filled with hypocrites. Now, I don't want anybody to mock or to blaspheme God under any circumstances. However, what I especially do not want is I do not want to be the reason why they are mocking and blaspheming God. When an unsaved person looks at your life and says, they go to that church, they carry their Bible, they have a Christian bumper sticker, they send their kids to a Christian school, they're, 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 they, they invite their Christian friends over to their house. They're, 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 they're religious people. But honest to goodness, it's, it's, it's a fake. It's a facade. Like, what does it actually produce? They're just as dishonest as I am. They get just as angry. They curse just as much as I do. They're, 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 there's, there's, there's nothing real about their religion. If they go on to rebel against God, they are responsible for their actions. However... We become contributors to their blasphemy by our inconsistency. And so again, I want to say, Happy Father's Day. Dad, are you a real Christian? Your children can tell whether or not you are. If you are the reason why they rebel, because quite frankly, they look at you and they say, all right, he's religious, but I know, like I watch him at home. Uh, he, 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 he has the people of the church fooled, but he doesn't have me fooled because he's not actually a real Christian. Your kids will blaspheme because they have not seen a gen, genuine and attractive faith in your life. So I'm wearing a tie this morning which belonged to my father. It's the only tie that I was able to go to the closet and steal after his death on the week of his funeral. So I got it. Well, he wasn't going to need it anymore. So, so I, I, I got, I have one tie that I was able to, to salvage. And, um, it's a reminder of my father on Father's Day. He was an imperfect man. He was an imperfect father. I could talk for a long time. Uh, about his sins and where he fell short. He's been gone for 31 years. My dad did a lot of things wrong. However, I, as a young boy and as a young teenager, when I was unsaved, had no doubts whatsoever in my mind that Christianity was real and it was genuine because I knew that my father was an actual Christian who loved Jesus Christ. Made mistakes like you would not believe, but my rebellion and my sin had nothing to do with the fact that my father was a hypocrite because he wasn't a hypocrite. He was a real Christian. His job was that of a DJ. He was a, he was a radio announcer spinning top 40. He hated rock and roll, but in order to feed the family, that's what he did. He would spin 45s. And then at the end of his shift every day, he would say, this is your country cousin, Charles Archibald Moore, bidding you farewell, encouraging you to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his precious blood. He was saying that on secular radio. My dad was not a hypocrite. He genuinely loved Jesus Christ. Dads, it's Father's Day. Do not let your disingenuous, disingenuous 
hypocritical life be the reason that your children would be blaspheming. Number four, this is a reiteration of the side point that I made earlier, and that is that the gospel is of first importance. Paul is not suggesting in verse 27 that the uncircumcised Gentile can actually keep the law and be saved by it. He's speaking hypothetically. Let's just say he could. He can't, but let's just imagine. But the truth of the matter is from James chapter 2, verse 10, that if anybody would keep the whole law, yet break it in one point, he's guilty of all. But Jesus kept the law perfectly. And Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins, and he rose again. And you need to know today that you can become right with God, not by keeping the law, but by placing your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ and his precious blood. His perfect life is your life, and his death is the substitution for your sins. Call out to Jesus to be saved. Martin Luther said, preach the gospel every week to your congregation because the people forget it every week. Number five, do not allow your religious heritage to fool you or to see, deceive you into believing that you have salvation. You may have a false sense of assurance based upon your religion. You had these, these, these Jewish people who thought that the law and circumcision saved them. They were wrong. You know that there are various forms of Christianity where people think that they are going to heaven because of the religion of Christianity, either because they were raised in a Christian family or they were baptized or they joined a church or they prayed the sinner's prayer. Listen, your church membership plus $2.75 will get you onto the subway. None of your religion is of any value. You need Christ. I ask you, do you have Christ? 1 John 5.12, he who has the Son has life. Does it not stand to reason, if Paul is writing here about Jews who were religious but were not saved, that there might be Christians here today who are religious but are not truly trusting in Christ? Christ plus nothing will get you into heaven. Number six, the purpose of the law of Moses was for a temporary time, and that was for the nation of Israel. This is kind of a theological point, but it's an important point. We're talking here about the law of Moses. This passage mentions the law. So the law of Moses was for a temporary time for the nation of Israel. Notice what it says in Galatians 3.19. Why then the law? Paul is asking, why then? What's the purpose of the law? Well, it was added, A-D-D-E-D, added. The word added means that there was a time when it was not there. So it started at a point in time. When was that? Mount Sinai with Moses. It was added because of the transgressions, transgressions of the people of Israel, until, that word until implies that it has an ending time. And what was that ending time? Until the offspring, the offspring is Christ, should come to whom the promise had been made. And so the law is no longer enforced for the Christian. We are not under the law of Moses. We are under the law of Christ. Romans 10.4 says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Number seven, closely related and also theological. Circumcision had a purpose. That purpose is no longer in effect. Have you ever wondered why this whole circumcision discussion is only applicable to men other than the biology of it? Have you ever thought, like, whoa, what about women? Like, how were they a part of the covenant? Like, what did, how, how did that work? Why is this just so male-centered? Well, I will tell you, because the real purpose of circumcision was to start with Abraham and then to follow and mark out his line until the male would come. The male, unto us a son is given. Circumcision is pointing to Christ and all of the promises of the covenant are fulfilled in Christ. And so, for that reason, once the male, Christ, came, then the purpose of circumcision 
is now defunct. So you want to circumcise your son? Go ahead. You choose not to? Makes no difference whatsoever spiritually. Physical circumcision no longer has any spiritual significance. Number eight, and also closely related. I personally do not believe that Jewish people, that is the nation of Israel in the Middle East, are the people of God. I believe that the people of God consist of the church. I believe the people of God consist of saved people, both Jews and Gentiles. The nation which is in the Middle East right now, which was formed in 1948, which is called Israel, I think there are some good things to be said about them. First of all, they are friends and they are allies of the United States, and they are a democracy. But they have absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with the kingdom of God unless there are individuals there who are saved. Jewishness, in the eyes of God, is not ethnic, it is not national, it is not political. Israel is not the people of God. The Israel of God is the Israel of God, and that is the church, that is those who are saved. Number nine, very important. Allow the Holy Spirit to change you from the inside out. Not through the letter, not through outward actions, but through a changed heart. And cultivate sensitivity to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve Him. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Romans 2.28 says that the true spiritual circumcision is brought about by the Holy Spirit. And so I ask, dear Christian, do you sense Him? Do you obey Him? Do you love him? Is he working on your heart? And can you tell that he is working on your heart as evidenced by how you live your life? See, I think that you understand that the removal of the flesh from the body does not change your heart. I think, I think I've sufficiently covered that. But are you aware that change in life comes about through circumcision, that is, circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit? And it is not conformity to outward standards, but what it is, it's the work of the Spirit in our heart. So sanctification or spiritual growth is the work of the Holy Spirit. Be sensitive to Him. The fruit of the Spirit is a transformed life by the Holy Spirit. So are you cultivating a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit or are you strictly going through the motions? And finally, number 10, Try as hard as you can to do your righteous deeds without anybody knowing about it except for God. Now, there are some of your righteous deeds that you have to do in front of people. Like, they have to see it. Like, preaching a sermon. Like, you have to get in front of people and do it. But there are times when we can do our righteous deeds without being seen by people. And I think the pride that exists, even in the heart of a Christian would cause that Christian at times to want to be seen and noticed and recognized and thanked. And I think it is a good thing for us as Christians to look around and if we see something, we thank the person, we appreciate them, we acknowledge them, we encourage them. And if someone thanks you for what you have done or they say something good that you have done, well, simply say you're welcome or if you work at Chick-fil-A, say my pleasure. But give the glory to God. But don't let your motive be that you want to be seen. Because if you do that, you already have your reward. A sign that the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart is that you will do as much as you can for the kingdom of God, trying as hard as you can not to be seen and not to be noticed, but desiring the glory of God and to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And you will do this because you love God. And the reason that you love God is because he first loved you. And that's what I told you at the beginning of the service, that God loves you. I hope that you have remembered that. I hope that you can see the love of God in this passage. Do what you do because you love God. You love him because he first loved you. Now, do it as secretively as you can. Okay, two down, 14 to go, which means what? 
means we're getting there. means we're getting there. Let's pray. Father, I first want to thank you for the attentiveness of the people today. Lord, uh, this has been a large encouragement to me. Now, Lord, as they have heard the word, uh, they have heard the ten observations. I pray, Lord, where application needs to be made, it will be made. I pray that Jesus Christ will be the one to receive the glory, that your spirit will be the one that is at work in our hearts. Lord, that we will appreciate the gospel and not lean upon our religion to please you. Thank you, Lord, for giving us Christ. We love him. We love you. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.